We've got LeBron James passing Kareem Abdul-Jabbar as the new all-time leading NBA scorer. And more, why is Novak Djokovic one of the most resilient tennis players of all time? It's Conversations with Alexander Stevenson and Sam Gore. Welcome, everyone. Sam's in Florida, and I'm in L.A. Hi, Sam. Hey, Alexandra. How's it going? Uh, it's it's good. Best time of year to live in Florida. I know. Well, we had 78 degrees the other day here, so we got close to you guys. Nice. Yeah, we're in the 80s today. Feel, it feels good. Lovely weather. Well, <laughs> Sam, tell me a little bit about yourself. Well, I am a full-time announcer for ESPN, and that takes various forms. Sometimes I'm in the studio. Most of the time I'm calling an event for play-by-play. I stay in the sport of tennis year-round, and then I do whatever college sport is in season that doesn't conflict with tennis, typically things like volleyball, basketball, gymnastics, other college tennis, softball, uh, things of those nature. So you are a man of the sports world. Yeah, I, I guess so. <laughs> and, <laughs> and how long have you been playing tennis? Uh, playing tennis since I was probably eight years old. Um, so many, many years. And I started working for ESPN strictly as a tennis commentator for their international network in 2004. So that's how long I've been announcing tennis. Yeah, and I feel like some people don't know that you've been in tennis so long and that you started at eight. A lot of kids don't start till 10, 11, 12. So, you know, you could have been a professional tennis player, Sam. Well, I I think my destiny was to talk about tennis, uh, though I do love to play. So, but what about you, Alexander? Remind people about uh, your big tennis career. (laughs) (laughs) Well, I'm a professional tennis player. I still have not decided to check the box to retire yet. And I've played for, I guess, 24 years as a professional tennis player, although I haven't played in the last three years on the tour. I just have been coaching a bit and practicing. Um, I kind of broke out on the scene at Wimbledon in 1999. I made history through qualifying. No woman woman has matched that record yet. I matched John McEnroe's record. But a woman hasn't done it yet, so maybe this year we'll see somebody get through. I keep waiting for somebody to do it. It's uh, qualifying to the semis, which is nine matches. It's a lot. And I played on the tour for five years before I hurt my shoulder, and then I rehabbed my shoulder, came back. I didn't get back to the top 50 in the world or the top 100. I got to 200 and played a lot of challengers, so I have a lot of experience doing that. And I've kind of been towards the top of tennis, top 20 in the world, and then I was down at the bottom in the challenger level. So I, I've learned all sides of how to be a professional tennis player and what it takes and just how hard it is. And I feel like this should be a fun podcast between us two. We have a lot of information and it should be a fun little take we have on the tennis world and in sports. Yeah, we, we certainly have good phone conversations. So uh, hopefully we can bring that to a podcast. Exactly. So let's dive, dive in. All right, so the number one question, why is Novak Djokovic the most resilient tennis player of all time, and do you agree with what I just said? 
Well, I can remember when Novak first came on the scene. That's when I was calling tennis for ESPN International with Jimmy Arias. And uh, Jimmy right away said, there's no weakness in his game. And this was before he was number one in the world. This was before he was uh, anywhere close to winning a major. This is when he was, you know, pulling out of the French Open with sinus troubles and saying he would have beaten Nadal. I mean, th this, this was at the very beginning, but Jimmy spotted right away what makes Djokovic to me so great is that he is really the first absolutely complete tennis player we've seen on the men's side. Generally, every world number one, every uh, other player, you could sit other guys down or analysts and say, what can you pick on on a perfect day and hope to win? and they would give you an answer. But with Djokovic, there's really no area of his game that leaves him exposed unless I think mentally he's not engaged in what he's doing. I do think his biggest issue sometimes are things that are happening outside of the court. But in terms of the tennis, there's just no holes in his game. So I, I, would, I would agree with you. How about you? Well, yeah, I totally agree that there's no holes in his game, except maybe the errant overhead occasionally, but it seems like he's fixed that the last couple of years. You look at the guy and sometimes you watch him play and to the casual viewer, they go, oh, this is so boring. He just gets everything. I mean, everything is clean and that's what makes him so special. He makes tennis look easy. As a professional tennis player, you're supposed to make the sport look easy so that people think they can do it. And we're going to talk about that a little later about pickleball versus tennis. But Djokovic makes it look like anybody can do it. And what he is doing is so difficult. And his movement and his flexibility and just how he approaches the game. And I really feel his upbringing has made him resilient. He's Serbian. He grew up in the 90s, early 90s there. His family, you know, has been a close nucleus circle with him. And yeah, he has crazy notions, we all know. But that's also what makes him so great and able to come back from any kind of adversity. You bring up an interesting point, Alexander, one that I hadn't really planned on covering. But I think the similar consistent thread between Roger Federer, Rafa Nadal, Andy Murray, Novak Djokovic, and the so-called Big Four at one point is exactly what you just touched on. They all came from homes with very good parenting. I feel like that they were all raised in the so-called right way. And so they have become very um, highly functioning adults. You see them have a perspective and an ease about them that in the past, maybe we haven't seen from great individual sport tennis players. And I think it all started when they were little boys, just the type of parenting that they had growing up. Yes. And you see it on the, tour now they still travel with their whole family unit most of the time when they can i mean now they all have kids and wives but their parents still come and there's always a family member in that box with all four of those guys and just what you said sam well done i'd even <laughs> give you that as a note <laughs> so i totally agree with that and 
him winning 10 in Australia. It was so funny because they kept saying 10 is a special number um, during the ceremony. And I was like, why is 10 a special number? So I looked it up and I could find that in soccer, 10 is given to the most important player on yep. the field. And you would know that because you cover all the sports. And if we're in Europe, we would say football or the rest of the world, but we are in America today, so we will say soccer. And I found that so interesting that they were tying the number 10 to Novak winning the 10th Australian Open. Yeah, it was. I thought that was an interesting take too, especially here in the US where maybe not as many people recognize the significance of the number 10 in sports. But I mean, what he's done in Australia and Rafa has done at the French and Roger at Wimbledon. It's just uh, they're just crazy numbers we've been blessed to live through and, and witness during this era. It's definitely extraordinary. Now, comparisons. Can you compare LeBron James to Novak Djokovic right now? You know, I've always found it difficult to make the comparison between a team sport athlete and an individual sport. Uh, not to take away from a team sport athlete. I mean, certainly... You know, Michael Jordan, LeBron, um, they just had this edge, they or have this edge to them, Kobe, this insatiable desire to win. And I think more often than not, players like that lift up the other players around them. But an individual sport athlete is on an island. And not only is that athlete required to win, but it ends up they support a whole group of people that are associated with their career. So for example, LeBron James is compensated by the Lakers. So he's paid to play. Um, his family benefits from his salary, but he negotiates a contract and gets paid. Well, in theory, now, yes, you can say endorsements are a whole other world that is guaranteed income, but in theory, an individual sport athlete, you win and you get paid. That's how it works. And so I've always found that the individual sport athletes, I mean, Tiger Woods in golf, for example, Jack Nicklaus, uh, they, to me, are more slightly more impressive when they break records than maybe a, a team sport athlete. But, you know, it's still incredible. I mean, I'm, you know, splitting hairs here, but I do think <laughs> it, I do think there's a lot more that goes into being an individual sport athlete and achieve that elite status than maybe um, some of the things you deal with as a team sport athlete. I'm so glad you gave anybody that's listening right now all that information because you are correct. An individual sport athlete, we have to pay for everybody. And basketball, you show up, you even have a towel boy. We, we have ball boys, but <laughs> we don't have a towel boy or somebody packing our bags. We have to do that ourselves, book the flights. It's definitely different. And from the mental standpoint, it's totally different. You are by yourself. You have to figure it out. And I have a funny story for you because it'll show you how difficult tennis is. And I love to get in discussions with this with the kids that I coach that tell me tennis is the easiest sport. I get very offended. Well, I remember I was down at La Costa practicing. I was 13 years old. And who was down on the tennis court but Michael Jordan? And Michael Jordan, we all know him, great basketball player, amazing athlete, right? History books. He was having the hardest time 
hitting the tennis ball and just getting the connection between the racket and the ball and the footwork and the turning. And I, I was 13. So I started laughing because I'm going like, what the heck? Michael Jordan is like whiffing balls and <laughs> he might be offended at me for saying this, but it was very difficult. And you see a lot of the basketball players, baseball, baseball might be a little easier because they're hitting, but some people, some of the, athletes play tennis and they will tell you it is a difficult sport. So what Novak Djokovic is doing and Rafael Nadal, and we have to add in Federer and Serena and what Steffi Graf did and Margaret Court is extraordinarily hard. And it's just amazing to watch. And that's why I feel like tennis shouldn't be the eighth sport in America. It should be at least top five. Well, to me, it's not that tennis itself is more difficult than any other sport. I mean, I still think hitting a baseball is one of the most difficult things to do, period. But I do think that the dynamic of being a tennis player is much different than a basketball player or a baseball player, because as you said, you are your own corporation. I mean, you're the CEO of your company. And so everything goes through you, the individual sport tennis player, as opposed to people that have a gift in a team sport. Yep, exactly. Well, let's touch a little bit since we did talk about Djokovic winning Australia. We have to talk about the strong American male players that made a breakthrough at Australia. Tommy Paul, Seb Korda. He made mo a little bit of a breakthrough, and then he hurt, hurt his wrist, which was unfortunate. But the biggest guy I love to talk about right now is Ben Shelton. And I know yeah. you know him very well, and he made a big impact this Australian Open. Yeah, it's one of the great stories that we've had in the sport of tennis the past few years. Ben grew up, uh, his dad's Brian Shelton, who was the men's coach at Florida. He was also the women's coach at Georgia Tech. He's the only coach in history to win a national title in men's tennis and women's tennis at Division I level. But, you know, Ben won the NCAA championship, came down to his court his freshman year at Florida. It's the first time Florida ever won. And then all of a sudden last year he wins the NCAAs and he's out playing challengers and he's doing really well. And then he goes to Cincinnati and he does really well. And he just sort of has this explosive growth and it all gets down basically to the game he has that live arm big lefty serve he's able to follow it up um, he grew up wanting to be a professional tennis player which I think sometimes that's a little lacking in our American culture with so many sports to choose from but this was his dream and he was again gets back to the parenting issue um, he was in such a good home with such strong parental influences. And if you've ever met Brian Shelton, he's just such a man of integrity and character. You know, Ben really didn't have any dysfunctional mess to get through to start playing professional tennis. So, you know, he's made all the right moves so far. He's got Tony Godsick's company representing him. He's being coached by Dean Goldfine, who was just one of the all-time classiest coaches in men's and women's tennis so it's been really fun to watch Ben at the start of the career the big question for me and then I'll shut up is you know Ben is still young and so 
now he's going to have to get used to playing tennis professionally week after week after week. And we'll see if some of this, uh, you know, he's so enamored with it. He's so enthusiastic, so passionate. We'll see if he can maintain that through an entire year or if, like a lot of other people, he kind of gets a little burned out that first year and has to learn how to manage um, his schedule a little better and, and his mind. Well, I I feel that he is what you said. He has a great parental background. He has a good, solid coach. That's very important. It's not so much that you get burnt out the first year on tour because it happened to me after Wimbledon, and I kind of – I remember – when I was so exuberant and everything was fabulous and Ben's just so happy-go-lucky and I was like that and it was fun to watch and it reminded me then after you have to learn how to be a professional tennis player and the traveling is difficult, the time zone change is hard and then you have all the players gunning after you to beat you. Now he is on the men's side so it might be slightly different because the girls, or I should say women, not girls, the women's side has that kind of, you know, women competitiveness where you do well, then they want to beat you even more. It's gotten better over the years, but it's kind of like the first six months after you do well, you just get, it's so difficult. And we saw it with Emma Raducanu. You have to adjust. It's it's basically going to college of the tennis tour and learning. So Ben's in his freshman year again on the tour and he just has to find his way and he has a good situation i think he's down in florida training at the usta a couple times because he's with dean goldfine is dean goldfine yeah. with the usta so he's got a good setup and tony godsick has been through it we know so he's walking into it in 2023 with a great start and i think he'll be all right well, as a, as a footnote to that, Alexander, the, the difference, the brilliance, I think, in, in Ben's case is that Brian, his dad, started putting this these pieces together before Ben even decided to turn pro. So last summer, he was approaching the agent that he wanted, the company he wanted to work with. He was approaching the coach that he wanted to guide Ben on tour. So the pieces were in place. You mentioned Radhikanu earlier. I think where maybe she's had struggles. She basically did what she did on her own. It was yes. just like sheer soul effort. Look what happened to me. Yeah. And then had to try to figure out who to work with and how to negotiate all this. Whereas in Ben's case, you know, it remains to be seen what kind of career he has, but his dad had the wisdom to know because Brian was on tour as well. Mm -hmm. It's helpful to put the pieces in place before you launch the company, so to speak. And that that's what I think is a big difference for Ben. That's so well said, Sam, because Radicana was in high school before she did well, right? I was in high school before I did well, had no plans to be on the tour, and then all of a sudden was on tour. And what you just gave that information is so important that Brian actually, his dad, planned this out. So he's already ahead of schedule. It's like you said, building a business, he was already being built. So it'll be exciting to see how he does this year with the business plan. So we got to talk a little bit about Tommy Paul. He did make the semis of the Australian Open, and he's kind of been the new 
kid on the block the last couple years, making ready for a breakthrough. He's calmed down a bit. He seems more zen on the court. What do you think he's done to become more mature? I know he's gotten older, but he's still 25. Yeah, I I mean, Tommy is a different uh, study, which is what I love about tennis. Everybody makes it in a unique way. Tommy decided not to go to college. Tommy decided to turn pro right away. I remember my buddy, Will Blumberg, who had an incredible career at UNC. They were doubles partners at the French Open. Will decided to go to North Carolina. Tommy decided to turn pro. And so Tommy, you know, has certainly been out there for a long time before the success. And to me, I, I think it just gets down to, I mean, I know in my own case, you know, I mean, it, as a, it just took me a while to mature, I guess, grow up. I mean, it's the same thing with a, a tennis player. It just, you go through uh, a lot of ups and downs and based on how you respond to those is what sort of success you have. And I think Tommy, um, you know, has just has a wealth of wisdom from what he's learned in those early years trying to make it on tour. And now he's got Brad Stein working with him and, you know, another good team around him. He's a great guy. I mean, all these Americans that you mentioned earlier, there's a camaraderie there that I think we haven't had in a long time in American tennis. And so I, I really think that that helps them become even better but now Tommy just seems to it's all clicking you know it's all mentally maturity Um, I think that's just a big difference for him yeah it's working for him and Brad Stein's really has improved his game and he's so functional as an athlete and it's no coincidence that Brad Stein was also Jim Courier's coach so you can see the comparisons with his movement and just how he handles himself on the court now we got to go into Francis Tiafo. I know yeah. he didn't do as well as we all want to do in Australia, but he did come out in a fabulous 1920s style romper Nike <laughs> outfit with a lot of colors and art. What did yeah. you think about that, Sam? Uh, you know what? What did you think about it? You're the fashion expert. Well, I loved it because he made a statement, right? He made a statement at the U.S. Open with his tennis. And he came to make a statement at Australia with his tennis, but also with his fashion. And he did make the New York Times styles section, which is a big coup if you want to be in the fashion world and pop culture and a tennis player. Because do you know who's co-chairing the Met Gala this year? Roger Federer. Oh, my gosh. I can't believe you know that. I'm impressed. What do you wow. think I live under? You think I live under a rock? Come on. <laughs> so that's a big deal that Federer is co-chairing the Met Gala the first Monday in May, the fashion event of the world with Anna Wintour. And guaranteed Francis is going to get an invitation. And he got everybody talking. It was a lot going on. Looked like he belonged to Art Basel in Miami. But I think it's cool. And he has the cool factor to wear that outfit. Yeah, and I, he does. I know you like color, so would you wear it? Yeah, you know, I I told you this uh, before. Um, when I first saw the shot of him in that outfit, my first reaction was, no, don't <laughs> go on the court with that on. And then when he got out of the court, I'm like, you know what? He's really pulling this off. And, you know, I think for the average person like me, 
I would go one or the other. So I'd wear the like sleeveless, colorful top and solid shorts or the colorful shorts and maybe a solid top. But, you know, he's yeah. he's got he's he's cool. You mentioned it. He, he pulled it off. He has so. the moxie to carry it off. Yeah. Shop of Olive wore the shorts with a white top and it just didn't go very well. And also, Azarenka had on the bike shorts with the crop top. Yeah. And I knew where they were going with this look, kind of like 90s revival workout wear. But I don't know. I don't, I don't know if I like the bike shorts on the tennis court. Yeah, I, I mean. Maybe for the gym. I don't I don't have a problem with it. But, <laughs> I, I feel like maybe men watching don't have a problem well, with I, bike shorts. I, I mean, I just feel like when you're on a blazing hot tennis court, you need to be as functional as possible. That's and true. So, you know, I don't want anything in inhibiting my movement if I'm running around the court. So I can only assume that's where it yeah. comes from. Well, she looked comfortable and it definitely yeah. was a functional outfit. Okay, so we got to talk a little bit about Andre Agassi mentoring Seb Corda. Do you feel like we're going to get an Andre Agassi sighting in the next I, couple grand slams. Yeah. I, I think that gets down to SETI. I mean, I, I don't look, I mentioned Jimmy Arias earlier and him immediately spotting Djokovic having no weakness before Djokovic was anywhere close to being great. And I feel like Andre is also of that same. He's just a unique and elite mind mm -hmm. when it comes to tennis Andre was always four shots ahead of you in every rally. He had a perspective about winning the game that he was playing that goes way beyond, I think, other players. It wasn't just, you know, Nadal, people say, just he's, he's going to go all out on every point. He's not going to miss. You're going to get his whole effort. With Andre, I feel like his strength was just his ability to see the game, to understand the, the dynamic, the angles, um, what your weakness was and how to expose it. And so if he's willing to impart that knowledge uh, to Sebi, and if Corda is willing to accept it, then that is going to be a powerful combination. Uh, but again, I think in those situations, it always comes down to the athlete competing. How much of that are you willing to absorb and implement um, because you are, as we've said, an individual sport athlete, and ultimately you got to make the decision when the ball's coming at you. Yes, absorbing the information is probably the most important part of a player, and a coach's job is to get the player to want to absorb it. That's what I feel. Uh, I went to lunch the other day with Brad Gilbert, who has the Agassiz connection and another <laughs> great minded tennis. And one of the things that my ESPN commentating has done for me is I've gotten to become friends with the likes of you and Brad and Pam Shriver and Jason Goodall and the whole crew, Darren Cahill. And Brad and I went to lunch at the Malibu Racquet Club, Sam. And yeah. we had we had a hit before we did like a 45 minute hit. And I just have to say it was just very cool. I was kind of wishing that I had Brad Gilbert as my coach back in the day because I'm going, I get to hit with Brad. This is so fun. And I just wanted to stay out on the court with him because, as you said, Agassi is a great mind. Brad Gilbert is another great mind that yeah. tennis fans obviously know Brad Gilbert, but just to sit with him at lunch and 
talk tennis is so invigorating and interesting and you're always learning and that that's just so cool that I get to do that. Yeah, and there, there's never a wasted moment with Brad. BG no. is always, um, you're either learning or laughing. <laughs> yeah, exactly. And we talked <laughs> about some little gossip, which was even more fun. <laughs> uh -oh. So we got to go a little bit back to what you said about Ben Shelton and his loose arm, because on the women's side, Arena Sabalenka won her first major tournament. And I'm going to say major because Cliff Drysdale always told me, a good friend of yours as well, that it's not a Grand Slam win. It's a right. major tournament win. Yeah. So the Grand Slam is all four tournaments. The but, four majors make up the Grand Slam. Yes, yeah. but we all like to say I won a Grand Slam or he yeah. won a Grand Slam, yeah. but really is a major. Anyway, Arena Sabalenka hired a serve coach a biomechanical specialist who she's calling a serve coach. All of a sudden she wins a major tournament in the Australian Open. She had like 388 double faults last year. And what do you think of that, having a serve coach? Because in baseball, they have a pitching coach. They have a shooting coach in basketball. They have a throwing coach in football. In tennis, you just usually have a coach. I had a coach that was great at the serve as a junior player so he kind of was my serve coach but the majority of players don't have serve coaches do you think that should be added into tennis well i think it depends on the player um if you watch tennis a lot of forehands and backhands look exactly alike but the serve is the one stroke that distinguishes each player yes. from every others so you know, in the men's game, you have to pretty much have a big serve in order to impose yourself on an opponent. Uh, the women's game, it, it's an, a huge asset to have a big serve because so few of the top women's players have that massive serve. So I think it's brilliant to have a serve coach for Sabalenka because that one shot can distinguish her beyond everyone else on tour. And it's a unique shot anyway. So if you're a player that realizes, you know what, I am awesome off the ground, but I can't set myself up to hit that incredible backhand down the line if I don't have a good serve. So to me, I, yeah, I think having a serve coach is a brilliant idea. Yeah, and it starts, you know, a lot of people say it's a mental block with your toss, but sometimes it's mechanical. A lot of the times I feel like it's mechanical and it's what you're doing with your left arm and your upper body. And as women, I'm including myself since I'm a woman, we're weaker up upper body than men are. Men are just physically stronger. So a lot of the times for women, it's harder to get that pop on the serve if you're a five, six, five, eight. Even if you're six feet, six one, like Sabalenka, she wasn't getting the loose arm like Ben Shelton had with her toss and her uh, turn on her shoulders. And she really improved that. So kudos to her. And it'll be an interesting year for her because with a big serve on the women's side, we've seen it with Rabakina, with Serena, with now Sabalenka, just the women that have big serves have the edge a lot of the time. 
I think it's coming in, in the women's game because uh, last summer, Pam Shriver and I were fortunate enough to call the girls national 16s and 18s. And we were, you know, she joked that she felt like she was back in the 70s because we were so struck by how many of the 16 and 18 girls were serving volley. I mean, it was serve and volley, serve and volley. It was get the first serve in and set up, uh, set yourself up to come into the net. So I feel like we may be getting into a, a shift where we see a lot more of that on the women's tour, uh, where that serve is more of a weapon to set yourself up the rest of the point. I agree. And also, I feel like the coaches now that are starting to coach, myself included, have had the net game included into their tennis and we're teaching it more and we see that the game is going faster with the more spins and more angles and you really need to get into the net and transition well otherwise you're going to be stuck on the baseline running side to side or angling it off and you're just going to get tired so in in my coaching i include well serve is a huge part and volleys approach shots getting into the net who wants to play boring baseline tennis right sam you do I just want to win (laughs) well this has been great but we got to talk a little bit about pickleball because Agassi Chang McEnroe and Andy Roddick April 2nd are playing a tournament for a million dollars not in tennis everybody in pickleball in Florida I feel like it's very close to the Miami Open semis or finals. They're playing it somewhere else. And it's a big discussion right now in the tennis world. James Blake is really involved in the pickleball world as well, who is, you know, his tournament director in Miami. And Sam Query already has some uh, endorsement deals as a pickleball. Yep. So I, I it's, it's here. It's, it's not growing. going anywhere growing exponentially. When I drive from Orlando to Gainesville to call a game at the University of Florida, now new neighborhoods on their billboards have listed how many pickleball courts they're going to have in the neighborhood as as an amenity. So I I haven't personally caught the bug yet, um, but I have yet to meet anyone who goes out to play and says, yeah, I hated it. It just wasn't for me. So um, it's it's inevitable, I think, that I'll I'll eventually start playing it. But I know as a network, ESPN, we we are going to start airing some of the professional events as well. So there is an audience for it. Um, it's a huge participation sport right now, and I just think that's kind of a fun little thing they're doing. And my it, it'll be interesting to see if they're any good. It'll <laughs> be fun. And 4.8 yeah. million Americans play pickleball right now. Eight million Americans play tennis and oh no sorry 20 million americans play tennis in the u.s and the pickleball guy that's the head of pickleball association wants to get up to 40 million pickleball players in the next five years it's possible he could do it because like you said i haven't played it i played it with a pickleball and a tennis racket my kid one of the kids i teach brought his pickleball and we hit with it which kind of isn't pickleball but it's tennis pickleball well and it's fun. Uh, the kids love it. Adults love it. Old people love it. Everybody can play it. I still have yet to go out on official pickleball and pickleball court and try it. 
But I don't think tennis is going anywhere. So we could make room for pickleball, maybe. Well, I was going to say, you know, I live in Lake Nona, uh, right down the street from the USTA National Campus. And on the USTA National Campus is a whole pickleball facility, as well as Padel, which is another racket sport. But I don't think we should be surprised if some of the ATP and WTA tournaments don't start working in some pickleball events that are simultaneous with their tennis tournaments. Um, I think that would be a smart marketing move for the world of pickleball and for tennis because a lot of people would come out to watch to watch both. So I think that's probably the next progression. You'll start to see tennis and pickleball instead of fighting against each other starting to have more of a, a cohabitation or marriage, if you will. Yes, it's just let's keep the pickleball lines off the tennis court and make their <laughs> own courts. That's yeah. the only pet them, peeve yeah. I have. I so, agree. You it's like the, the worst. Lines. Yeah. You got to move the lines. That's yeah, right. you got to have yeah. your own lines in your own court, <laughs> pickleball people. All right, Sam. Well, that was fun for our first podcast. That's yeah. it for us. I appreciate you be, being my partner, and I can't wait to see how it goes. Our scoop of the day is going to give it to LeBron James. Got to give it to him for making history. He got the basketball passed to him by Kareem Abdul-Jabbar. Quite a moment last week. Our quote of the day is, sometimes you win, sometimes you lose, sometimes it rains. And that's from Bull Durham. Bye for now, guys. Pulling up to Mickey D's just for drinks? Oh, yeah, that's me. Nothing extra, just perfection and a straw. Coming in hot for the coldest cups on the block. Because there are drinks. Then there are drinks from McDonald's. Mix things up with any size lemonade or sweet tea for $1.49. Perfect with our classic fries. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba.